Um, welcome back, everyone, to this month's research briefs. Today, we're going to talk to one of the engineering education pioneers, and as such, she is a first of many things in our field. So, I bring to you a scholar and someone that I really look up to, Dr. Ruth Streveler. <laughs> so, I just want to start by offering a few things that make her a first, since that's a focus of this. Season. So she's a professor emeritus of engineering education at Purdue University. And when I say first, I think about one, this podcast, like the creator and inaugural host of Research Briefs. So thank you again to, for trusting us and passing the baton to Monique and I. Um, before going to Purdue, she started at the started the Center for Education Research. Uh, the, so she started yes. the center, the Center for Engineering Education, which is a research center at the Colorado School of Mines, um, a co-author of a very pivotal piece in our field called Rigorous Research in Engineering Education, which is, has a lot of merit and shaped a lot of conversations and even a lot of people's careers um, and scholarly interests. Um, and another thing is just she's a leading scholar in conceptual change. and. Um, helping people to do engineering education research. So we, we'll touch on some of those topics, but we'll veer to other things um, today as well. So thank you again, Ruth, for being our first guest. It's an honor to have you. Thank you. And I am very, very honored that Jeremy, you and Monique are taking over this adventure with research briefs. I, I know you'll make it very exciting. Our goal, we won't let you down. So what is it like to be a first, right? When I think about pioneering anything, you know, there's typically a lot of fear and angst and hesitation associated with that. So how, like, what is it like to be a first and how does one, I guess, battle those uh, internal barriers that keep us from being pioneers? You know, I don't know that, I was afraid, okay. um, and I don't know why that is. I, I think I was lucky to have parents that trusted us, and I was the the baby of four. So you know, parents get more relaxed as they have more kids. Um, but that's one theme for all of my siblings and I. My I remember my parents always saying when I would say, oh, I'm going to do X, they'd say, well, you got to do what you got to do. And they really didn't try to steer us. Um, and so what will happen is I'll be in a situation and I'll see an opportunity or something that would be fun. And I just see how to do it. Nice. So I, I, I think what it takes is to trust yourself and look for opportunities. You kind of have to have an entrepreneurial mindset in a way in that you're, you're uh, you know, finding possibilities and it isn't necessarily for something that you're going to sell or a product you're going to develop, but, you know, what you could do with your career. Um, and then you, if you're lucky, you find allies and partners and, and what I usually do is if I have an idea, I get excited about it and I start talking to people and 
hopefully you accumulate some people that you feel safe with that um, want to come along for the ride and they, they help to push the, the pathway open a little bit and maybe tell you, oh, go over there. It's, it's not as steep right there. Or, uh, yeah, they, their excitement just kind of propels you along. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the problems I have, Monique, is that I'm unrealistic about my first and that I never think anything's going to happen and that everyone will love me and it'll all go smoothly. And my biggest stumbling block not has been being afraid of jumping off, but realizing maybe I need a parachute or there's a rock sticking out or so I almost have to learn to be more cautious versus to learn to be more bonsai-ish about it, you know. Thank you. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think has been your greatest impact? You know, I'm an impact person. I love the word. I think it's overused, and yet I say it all the time. Um, so what do you think has been your greatest impact, either as a researcher, an educator, or member of the community? Like, how would you reflect on the arc of your career? So being now an emeritus professor, which means I just retired, um, there's plenty of opportunity to write different documents and just think about, okay, what did you do? So I'm a little bit embarrassed by how easy it is for me to think about this. Um, I think if I was 50 instead of 70, it, and and also now because I'm really entering a new phase, I can look back at the old one. I think when you're right <laughs> in the middle of it, it's not so clear. Sure. Um, but I would think for the whole community, you had mentioned the rigorous research in engineering education and coming up with the idea for that and then being the, I wasn't the PI of the project, but I was kind of the major catalyst for gathering the group and writing the proposal. Um, and so that did, so that started in 2004, so almost 20 years ago, which was a very different time in engineering education. It was, you know, right before the Journal of Engineering Education switched to be right. more scholarly. It's before either Purdue or Virginia Tech started their departments. Um, so there really wasn't a field yet. And I think the RREE really helped create the field and nurture people that were, one of the things is we have done interviews with people that look back on the RREE and can actually remember that they took it. <laughs> <laughs> and which I think gee do I remember that I took things 20 years ago not necessarily you know um, but I think that often launched people they made themselves feel um, legitimate now as actual members of this community 
And many people say that was very important. So I think as far as the community, that's um, a contribution that I'm, I'm, I feel very satisfied and fulfilled by. Um, having been at Purdue for 17 years and being lucky enough to teach a required course for all that time, I basically saw every single one of the PhD students, of which now there's well over 100. Um, and so getting to know you folks and being able to contribute different ideas, um, particularly with curriculum design, but with other things too. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's, that's just a wonderful contribution that, again, I just feel so grateful for. Mm -hmm. um, and then in researching, um, perhaps later you might talk more a little bit about conceptual change. So mm -hmm. maybe I'll save mm -hmm. a little bit of that for that discussion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I just want to put a pin in one thing that you've mentioned. You said um, you brought up the rigorous research in engineering education, the outputs of that. Um, so as somebody who was very pivotal to either shaping that and just kind of watching its trajectory over time, I want to know if you have any reflections now this 20 years later, either on its resonance or its resistance. <laughs> Or its impact um, now that the now that it has aged. So, you know, I look back and my face turns red at some of the naivete that I had about things. Um, obviously, one of the things that I didn't realize was the charge in the word rigorous, mm. and. Um, it just uh, had a nice alliteration to me at the time. Right. And and so I created it with, uh, you know, came up with it without really thinking about other implications. Mm. Um, I see now that I had still the very strong remnants of a positivist mindset. Um, and so there were some things in that of still still looking more at generalizability and other kinds of things that now it's like, oh, <laughs> um, so, you know, I think at the time it was very groundbreaking. Now, if you look at it, some of it, the things seem quite dated. Mm -hmm. um, for example, for quite a while, um, Carl Smith and I, who was also very instrumental with uh, RREE, you know, just totally turned away from the word rigorous and just called it, you know, like high quality research or other kinds mm -hmm. of things mm -hmm. that, that don't have the history to it as the word rigorous does. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, the other thing I also see is that anytime you create a community, you create not a community mm. and that there are people that feel left out. Um, and of course, there'll be some pushback. So, you know, again, we've we've seen that of reactions to it or um, do you really need a framework? Or do you really need this? Or how come I'm now being asked to provide that? I never had to. Um, and so, of course, there there's resentments from people that we 
unintentionally um, left out, or okay. they were they they felt they were left out. Yeah. If only we really had a crystal ball um, <laughs> and could write perfect documents, life would be much simpler. There'd probably be fewer documents. But <laughs> um, well, well, thanks for and sharing. And and also, you know, the culture grows, the community mm -hmm. grows, mm -hmm. and so things change. Mm -hmm. um, and we, you know, we'll see that now of looking at things that maybe we thought were a comedian that said something 20 years ago that we thought was right. funny. And now it's like, oh, that's so not funny anymore. Right. Yeah, that's right. I know it's a little off script, but are, are there any documents now or publications now that you feel are shaping the field or guiding what we do or even explain some things that we may be focusing on? Ooh, goodness, that's a good question. The things that I think of all popped up in the like between 2005 and 2010. Mm -hmm. So that's a ways. I think now the new things haven't been able to have the test of time. I know there are researchers creating frameworks and instruments and ways of thinking about things um, that I think probably will be pivotal, pivotal, but they're too new to really know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the crystal ball. So I'll, now I'll yeah. go, as they say, right to your address, to conceptual change. So can you speak to the arc of conceptual change or conceptual understanding and that body of scholarship. Um, some may not even be familiar with that arc. Not even just kind of mm -hmm. giving us a, you know, a bird's eye view um, of that space. And what do you think is yet to be understood when we think about that topic um, in the context of engineering education? Well, as I was thinking about this, what I saw was a series of developments that seemed very exciting at the time that kind of reached dead ends. Mm. Um, so the first of these that I was involved with was, I guess I would call it the rise of concept inventories, which started with Hestinez and Haloon and the forced concept inventory um, in the mid 80s and early 90s and but it then in the very late 90s and the early 2000s that got to be a very hot topic um the funders at nsf liked it a lot and so there was a prol proliferation of concept inventories mm -hmm. and everyone got very excited about it and started to test their students but there wasn't really an established methodology Mm -hmm. And so how much these concept inventories that I'm using air quotes were different than any teacher created tests it wasn't really clear. Um, one of the things that I was excited about as a contribution was 
being able to help establish a methodology um, and to use the assessment triangle as a way of um, being able to see, you know, how are you going to know about what are the concepts that are difficult? Why might they be difficult? And then what are some ways to measure them and validate those measurements? Mm -hmm. um, there began then shortly after that, this idea that, oh, we need to pay attention to systematically creating these. We need to pay attention to things like validity and reliability. Mm -hmm. um, and the psychometrists really began to take over and, and be able to build more and more reliable and valid concept inventories. And I was lucky enough to work with Jim Pellegrino and the late Lou DiBello and other of their students and postdocs at the University of Illinois at Chicago who were really leaders in trying to create the best instruments you could. One of the things that happened though, though, that for these kinds of refinements, you need a lot of data points. Yeah. Um, and that really became a stumbling block because you had an instrument you were still developing, right. but yet you want to have gazillions of people take it and what good is it to them if it's not quite developed yet? Right. And then also you have to find institutions, people at institutions that have say, you know, 500 students a semester in thermodynamics when a lot of places will have 20 or 30 students a semester. And it's going to take a long time to get 1500 yeah. data points from a place like that. That's right, yeah. Um, so that really became a huge stumbling block, I think, in the psychometrics of it. And then there's also people really looking at the bias, biases mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. fairness. Mm -hmm. And again, you really need large ends for that. Mm -hmm. um, and large ends with diverse populations of students, which we know in engineering, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that has popped up is, um, Mickey Chi and her student Jim Slada began to really look at this idea of the nature of the concept itself and its role on misunderstandings and misconceptions. And they developed something called ontology training to help people look at, um, is there something about the underlying ontology of the concept, particularly is it something that arises out of an emergent property of a system versus something more linear or sequential. Um, and that again, very exciting. The work that Jim Slada did and some, later some other people have done um, was exciting. We began to test that. We meeting one of my colleagues, uh, Ron Miller at Colorado School of Mines and then also my first postdoc Dazi Young, who's now a professor at Boise State, who's still working very diligently in this ontology training area. But we found that the ontology training worked sometimes and didn't work other times. And so mm -hmm. it was concept dependent, really. And um, we 
finally, about a year or two ago, tried to come up with a cogent argument for why that seemed to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but that also has kind of stalled a bit too, because it, this wasn't the panacea we thought it might be. Mm -hmm. um, and then just seeing how the language of engineering seems to be steeped with these things talking about things as being sequential when they're not. Mm. Um, and that's kind of a shortcut that experts realize, oh, that's just a shortcut, but students can misinterpret when they're first learning it. Um, so what that I think has led to is my, my own thought that conceptual change work is kind of stalled. And I did a lot of thinking about this mm -hmm. and have arrived on what I think is really a missing part of conceptual change research. Mm -hmm. And that I have now come to think that any knowledge, including conceptual knowledge, is really part of a culture and isn't, can't be divorced from the culture that uses it. Mm -hmm. um, and that, therefore, how the learner positions themselves in that culture, it feels comfortable with it or not comfortable with it part of it or excluded from it has, I believe, a huge impact on their willingness to even engage in learning it. Mm. Um, and um, so I have called this socially embedded conceptual change. And I think that's an area, I know for myself, that's an area that I want to keep investigating. Um, and when I start looking more at not only an intervention, but the people who are doing the intervening mm. and, and their culture. And again, the learners' feelings about that culture. Mm. Um, so that's where I see conceptual change going. Mm -hmm. Can you tell you just something quickly about how you arrived at culture as one of the missing links to making sense of conceptual change? It was very circuitous. <laughs> okay. Um, it was not linear. Yeah. No, it was very circuitous and very um, interesting in that, you know, one of the things like that Thomas Kuhn, who was the whole idea person who created this idea of paradigm shifts, and revolutions in science really had said is that often it's only when you look for, at a paradigm outside of that culture that created it that you can really begin to tap away at it. Sure. And my first real smack me across the head aha moment came when I was reading about evolutionary biology of humans. Mm -hmm. which you would think really doesn't have much to do with conceptual change, but it does have to do with my background as a biologist and someone who likes looking at social systems and evolution and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the recently deceased uh, but very renowned uh, evolutionary biologist, E.O. Wilson, 
was writing about his ideas about, uh, again, the social systems, and really said that within humans, it is not the individual that is um, acted on by selective pressure, the, the pressure of natural selection, but the group. And that, so he said that we are, therefore, we have evolved to be very collaborate, collaborative and um, very loyal to our group and very competitive and suspicious of other groups. Mm. And that for me was my aha moment and began then going back to conceptual change also being in the moment when the group one identified with, particularly the political group one identified with, really showed huge differences in many beliefs folks had or acceptance of vaccines work. Does that work? What about is science just a big conspiracy? All of that was really um, linked to people's groups. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, oh my goodness, that's conceptual change in the wild. Mm -hmm. We want now suddenly people to adopt a different way, a protocol for keeping public health safe. But they're very staunch in saying, no, that's a total lie. That's a conspiracy. Um, that's a trick. And so how do you... What do you do? Mm -hmm. um, so those things kind of came together. Um, yeah. So that that was the aha, but there was a long yeah. journey, a long journey to get there. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I can't help but think about some of the work that's been done, not only on the cultural backgrounds of individuals and culturally relevant pedagogy, but I think about engineering culture, like things that we're learning about just norms and values and the way things are done around here um, in engineering and how those um, cultural elements may clash, even as you think about like talking about culture, you know, how it's just even that construct is pretty multifaceted. So um, thanks for sharing. Thanks for going You're off the top with me. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And sort of building off of that before I go to my my question is is thinking about this, thinking about this socially embedded conceptual change, thinking about also the topic that you talked about, about um, the RREE paper, and it's sort of setting the tone. And now thinking about that. Oh, it was a, it was a five day workshop that lasted a whole year. It was not a paper. By the, time came, by the time it came to us, it was a paper. It yes. was a paper. <laughs> yes, but it was, again, and again, thinking about going back to the idea of the RRE, we embedded it in a community of practice. And the mm -hmm. fact that you had a community there working through things, I think, was really important. And they were establishing a language, and they were establishing norms. Um, again, became, I, th I think, a really important piece of its acceptance and definitely its impact 
people mm -hmm. now said, I now felt I belonged in this community. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I was trying to draw some of the connections of how connected these things are, right? This idea of looking at conceptual change, which which is effectively what you were doing, right, with the RREE workshop, right? You were trying to change a community conceptually, their understanding of what research was and what engineering education research was and how it was built in this community, right? Thinking about the social elements of it and the culture of engineering. And, and I would even say that like, yes, I know you said now you're kind of cringy about the word choice back then, but like it was what was needed at that time when you think socially, politically, contextually of moving from an engineering discipline that was very positivist into an engineering education space. And you kind of had to play off that a little bit. I mean, I, yes. So I, I say all that to say, I feel like, you know, your thread, while they may sound like two, two, two very di divergent areas, we're, are very much intertwined in ways. And, and like, it's not just the research, right? Like you were practicing it through this conceptual change workshop and this year long, um, and so I, I, I don't know, I'd, in case the listeners weren't putting the pieces of the puzzle together, I was over here drawing maps on my side. Over here. <laughs> and I also wanted to like drop explicitly socially embedded conceptual change, because I really think that people need to hear that over and over again, and hopefully pick mm -hmm. up the baton and run with it um, as something mm -hmm. that should be further explored. Mm -hmm. with, with all of that. It's prediction time, right? Um, it's the time where I ask you, where do you see engineering education going? So getting back to Jeremy's crystal ball that she put down, we're going to pick it back up and give it to you and say, if you could predict the future of engineering education, what would you say? What do you see? So engineering education as a field has moved from um, a pioneer slash renegade pathway um, which it was for all the, the founding members of the discipline to a very um, established pathway with hundreds of PhDs and more and more programs um, happening and more receptivity to it. So with it has come this change from more of a startup to a big company maintenance mindset. And um, as a person who was a pioneer, that always seems a little dull to me when it becomes just like, oh, well, you know, there's now 30 ways you could do this instead of you've got to make it up yourself. It's like, what? <laughs> um, but I think it also then can maybe be too rigid. Um, and so y'all who are still, you know, associate professors and instead of emeritus, um, who still have to worry about this a lot, um, you know, you might feel constrained. Um, I One of the things that I always heard in the RREE early days of people who came to engineering education with a question, they usually had um, a variation of one of two questions. One of them was, does X teaching method work better than lecture? So they were very concerned about more student-centered teaching methods and moving that. 
The other question that people might come with was, why doesn't engineering look more like me? Why aren't there more people like me in engineering? And in many ways, I see those two themes still very, very much in engineering. And I think there's a bit of a battle between the two right now um, with some groups thinking that the why don't more people like me be in engineering, which is now more a social justice movement, that maybe that has been ascendant and the teaching and learning part has faded a bit. Um, and, and so, again, th these things are not disconnected from communities and from people um, and also from funders having a particular uh, appetite for different kinds of things. Um, and so I, I would think in the immediate future, there's kind of going to be a bit of a battle between those two. Uh, hopefully not a nasty battle, but a bit of a battle. Um, what I'd like to see is the idea of socially embedded conceptual change really saying that you cannot, you cannot disconnect the teaching and learning side from the social justice side. Because again, knowledge is not disconnected from the community, from the culture. Right. Um, and to begin to see more, you know, to, I would hope, I would love to see that those things begin to merge and those things being the social justice and the teaching and learning side really begin um, to merge and to fuse together because I think in reality, they really can't be separated anyway. Um, now, will that happen? I don't know. Um, what tends to happen when you have more and more groups is they battle with each other a bit. So what do I expect to see? Some battling, some, you know, and again, this doesn't have to be like throwing knives at each other, but um, a little bit of competition um, and then merging together and breaking apart and merging together and breaking apart. This is, seems to be what human groups do. Mm -hmm. Are um, still with the, well, I guess maybe not crystal ball, just like from you, this is the name drop part of the portion of the, the podcast. Are there new scholars that you are following and that we should be following? So the person that I really am excited about is an African researcher um, named Esther Makemba. And um, she is finding a way to create a community of African engineering education researchers very fearlessly. Um, I think that Africa on a con as a continent and as, you know, the people that live in Africa is where it's at in the world, is the emerging mm -hmm. continent, is the future of many, many, many things. And so to be able to see engineering education um, 
be formed naturally, organically from African researchers is something that I just am extremely excited about. Um, and I'd want everybody to keep um, an eye on her. Um, I also am very excited about the people who are looking at um, other areas of knowledge that are, are more hidden, um, things like beliefs, things like intuition. Uh, they're very messy, they're overlooked, but extremely important. Mm -hmm. um, so as you know, uh, Emily Dringenberg is a good buddy of mine. Um, I find her work exciting. Um, there are other researchers working with um, intuition that, again, it, it's in its infancy, but I, I think it's a really important aspect. So those are people that I'm particularly excited about. But, you know, now having worked with so many emerging researchers like you two and at least a hundred others. Um, the work you folks are doing as a group is inspiring. Your willingness to want to really contribute to the world is inspiring. Mm. Um, so that there's a lot of folks to watch. Thank you. We'll try to have some of them on this podcast. Very good. So thanks for name dropping. Um, so as the creator and founder of Research Breach, are there any parting words you want to share with the international research briefs community? I well, the thing that evolved for me over the six seasons of research briefs was, yes, the research is cool, but the researchers are more cool. <laughs> and in that, whenever you're really creating something new, it's never a linear path. There's always lots of doubts. And all the new researchers see, the people, the grad students and the others who are entering the field, all they ever see is the end result, which looks like this wonderful linear unraveling. Because mm -hmm. when you write it up, you've got to write it up that way. And you've got word limits and la, 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 la. And yeah. maybe in the discussion, there's like two or three lessons learned. But there's whole stories to that. So telling the story of the people that are doing the research. Um, I think, I hope that's something that research briefs will continue to do. I know I will be an avid listener. Um, <laughs> and uh, I know you'll do a fabulous job with it and, and see things from a perspective that my 70 year old pioneer self won't see um, because you're not that, you know. Um, so have fun with it. 
We'll do our best. Again, it's an honor. Um, you know, we both admire you. So to be able to walk in your shoes in any way um, is a privilege, let alone to take a baton from you and try to keep running. Um, but our focus will be on research and researchers. So we will we will take you up on that. Um, so thank you. At least we have one listener that's going to continue. Yes. <laughs> I know you will have many. I know you will have many. Yeah. Monique, is there anything you want to say as we close? I have a lot of things I want to say, but I'm going to not put them in the recording. I'm just going to say thank you for your time. And then I'm going to uh, sign us off. So thank you for tuning in. Until yeah. next time. <laughs>